Morning. 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 How are we? Bit chilly. Bit cool. You okay? Just me, us, us Southerners. You see, we we feel like cold when we come up north. So uh, first of all, um, let me just bring you greetings from Helmshaw Christian Fellowship. Uh, as uh, as you've heard, it's the uh, the pulpit uh, exchange Sunday where we all swap round, and uh, you've joined the short straw this this year. So uh, so you've got me. So um, maybe uh, while we're all sitting there, you can pray for yourselves or pray for me, whichever you think has the greatest need for that. I I think. Um, I've done the pulpit exchange now, I don't know how many years, a few years now, uh, in this part of the world. And I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting process. It's really an opportunity, I suppose, for, for, for all the churches to get a bit of variety and see who else is in the valley and see what's going on. But, but I think really it's also an opportunity for somebody who doesn't know anything about you at all to come and share a word with you, share a message with you. And generally speaking, I feel like when I want to, when I come round and when I do these these shows, I want to I want to encourage people almost more than anything else. It feels like it wants to be a time of encouragement, and it's and for me it's always a, a privilege to to be able to come and share and to come and preach because I find that I have maybe my best weeks in the weeks before I I preach or the weeks before I share God's word. And I think that's because, for more than usually, I'm a little bit attuned to what's, what's going on around and, and really where I can see God's hand in what's happening around me. One of my favorite books, one of the, my, my favorite books that I uh, have, I've, I'm a, I dread to think how many times I've read this book, um, is a book called Illusions. And it's by the same guy who wrote the book, uh, he, he wrote a much more famous book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull the guy who wrote it, Richard Bach. But, but he wrote another book called Illusions, which, is, which he calls The Story of a Reluctant Messiah. And it's, it's essentially another version of Jesus who turns up in about 1950s America. And at one point, this, uh, this 1950s Jesus is asked a question, and he says something. And the guy in the audience who hears him says, sounds to me like you're quoting a Snoopy cartoon there. And, and that Jesus says... I'll quote the truth wherever I find it. And I think it's my experience that you can find God, you can find the truth in many, many places if you open your eyes and if you're aware of it and if you look around. And I want to encourage you, one of the first things I want to encourage you to do, I encourage people at at Helmshaw all the time, is to keep looking for the signature of God, just as just as people can look at a painting, experts in art can look at a painting, and they can just know by the brushstrokes who the artist is. So I think if we look around the world and we look at, at what we have here, and we look at our experiences, if we look carefully, we can see we can see evidence of God in those things. And I want to encourage you to keep looking because there's so much more of it around than we're aware of. If we're not careful, we get our heads down and we get buried in our day-to-day. And I want to encourage you to just keep looking because God's speaking to us all the time. In many cases, through things, through situations, through opportunities that we don't really consider. And in the week leading up to coming here, there were a couple of things that really spoke to me. 
Number one was on Friday I was at a funeral. I was at a funeral of my one of my uncles, uh, eighty-three years old, down in Southend. This funeral, and fortunately, uh, we'd seen that uncle. I'd seen that uncle together with all his brothers and his sister, and and his extended family in September. Because we were at a, a family birthday together, an 80th birthday party, we were all there together. And there he was there, and, and fortunately he, because they're quite dispersed, his family now all over the UK, uh, were all together, and it was good to see him. And there he was, and he was suffering from the early stages of Parkinson's. And and it was tremendously tempting, when I was thinking before the funeral, to think of him as as this 83-year-old man. It was It was tempting to think of him like that. But... But one of the great things about the funeral was that a couple of his grandsons got up and spoke. They gave a, a very nice eulogy. But then afterwards, uh, his family had organised a, a bit of a display, and there was all the f- a lot of photographs all the way through his life. And there was this guy, and I've known this man. I've known him my entire life. And yet, it only really started to occur to me that he had another entire life before even that that I was barely aware of. So there were pictures of him. He represented the army in cross-country running and he played football for a, numerous different teams and and he had a love of shoes, apparently. But they used to call him the Imelda Marcos of his family. And he was a, he was a father, a husband, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, a golfer, bit of a party animal. There was uh, there was some pictures of some fairly outrageous shirts, and he clearly loved a fancy dress party. Going by some of the uh, the pictures, there was so much to him. There was so much more than was immediately obvious. If I just took that one snapshot in time, the last time I saw him alive, there was so much more to him than that. The other thing is, I've been reading a book uh, just recently by a chap called Bill Bryson. Does anyone know who Bill Bryson is? You know Bill Bryson, like a bit of Bill Bryson. He writes some quite funny stuff around uh, travel books. But, but more recently, he's been getting into writing a little bit more about various elements of science and, and nature. And I'm going to read you a, a passage from, an introductory passage from one of his books. It's quite, a, it's quite a long passage, so bear with me, but I'm going to read this to you. We pass our existence within this warm wobble of flesh and take it almost entirely for granted. How many among us know even roughly where the spleen is, or what it does, or the difference between tendons and ligaments, or what our lymph nodes are up to. How many times a day, this is a very relevant question, how many times a day do you suppose you blink? 500? A thousand? You've no idea, of course. Well, you blink 14,000 times a day. I don't know how many times, I can't do the maths on how many that is a second, but I'm pretty sure it's not that many a second. Your eyes are shut for 23 minutes of every waking day. Yet you never have to think about it. Because every second of every day, your body undertakes a literally unquantifiable number of tasks. A quadrillion, a, a nonillion, a quindecillion. At all events, some number vastly beyond imagining, without requiring an instant of your attention. In the second or so since I started this sentence, your body has made a million red blood cells. They are already speeding through your veins, keeping you alive. Each of those red blood cells will rattle around you about 150,000 times, 
repeatedly, de- repeatedly delivering oxygen to your cells, and then, battered and useless, will present itself to the other cells to be quietly killed off for the greater good of you. Altogether, it takes seven billion, billion, billion atoms to make you. No one can say why those seven billion, billion, billion atoms have such an urgent desire to be you. They are mindless particles, after all, without a single thought or notion between them. Yet somehow, for the length of your existence, they will build and maintain all the countless systems and structures necessary to keep you humming, to make you you, to give you form and shape and let you enjoy the rare and supremely agreeable condition known as life. It's a much bigger job than you realise. Unpacked, you are positively enormous. Your lungs, smoothed out, would cover a tennis court. And the airways within them would stretch from London to Moscow. The length of all your blood vessels would take you two and a half times round the earth. The most remarkable part of you is your DNA. You have a metre of it packed into every cell. And so many cells that if you formed all the DNA in your body into a single fine strand, it would stretch 10 billion miles to beyond Pluto. Think of it. There is enough of you to leave the solar system. You are, in the most literal sense, cosmic. And that's... that's um, that's just amazing. Just amazing. It, in fact, it's so amazing that we can't really fit it in our heads, can we? You can't really, even though we can fit it in our bodies, the concept of it, you can't really even fit into your head. Or at least I can't. Of course, Bill Bryson needed and bothered writing that book because David already had a go at this um, much more concisely in Psalm 139. So let me read that psalm to you. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will be not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. 
If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Another bit of science for you. Are you, are you familiar with are you familiar with Schrodinger's cat? Do you know what I mean by Schrodinger's cat? Some of you do, some of you don't. So Schrodinger's cat is a thought experiment and really it's designed to illustrate that the very act of looking at something Actually, in the very act of observing something influences the thing that you observe. I think of it a little bit back to front here. I think that psalm, 139, I think how I respond to that psalm says to me a little bit about my state of mind, about where I am. And I wonder if you can think about how you respond to that psalm, because you can respond to that psalm, 139, in lots of different ways. And I think the way in which you respond to it says a little bit about how you think about yourself and your relationship with God. There's something of a challenge in it for you and something of encouragement in it. So something about the idea that whatever I am doing, God has foreknowledge of that. That could be encouraging. That could be a bit frightening, couldn't it? That could be a bit intimidating. How you view the idea that God can see everything that you're going to do. That might be comforting. That might be a bit disconcerting. Whether it's comforting or disconcerting depends on, on you, not on God. Depends on your state of mind, what you think about yourself. What you think you're likely to do. Are you a bit worried about what you're likely to do? <laughs> Are you likely to be embarrassed about it? Or are you likely to be proud of it? I don't know. Is it something you're going to want God to be seeing or something you'd rather he couldn't see? Would you rather the darkness could hide you? Sometimes I wonder in that passage about the paradox of having free will and yet having all my days ordained for me. How can it be that God has written in his book everything that's going to happen, that everything that I'm going to do, and yet I'm still making choices? How does that even work? Is that encouraging? Or is that a bit depressing? Is it depressing that I could, I could take that as a view that it doesn't really matter what I decide, it's already laid out before me? Or I could take it as encouraging that there is a plan. David, at the end of that psalm, says, test me. Wow, do I want God to test me? Do I really want that? Do I want to be tested? I've had days in my life, periods in my life, where I've actually prayed for precisely the opposite. <laughs> I've said, God, don't test me. I'm not sure I'm up to it. That's a, even that, even that invitation to God to come and test you, come and test me. What does that say about someone who's prepared to do that? Does that say that they're confident in themselves? They think they'll stand up to a test of God? 
Or does it mean that they appreciate that that there are faults with it, there are faults within me, faults within us, and they need refining, they need searching out, they need correcting and dealing with. And if that's the case, does it say to me that I understand that God will treat me gently in that process? I think the more and more you look at Psalm 139 and that relationship about being a fearfully and wonderfully made thing, the more it makes me think, where am I? What am I like? How do I respond to that psalm? It talks about anxious thoughts in that psalm. I've had anxious thoughts. If God has all of my days mapped out for me, if God has a plan for me, if that plan is wonderful, and if that plan culminates in a life in heaven, live with God, how on earth can I have anxious thoughts? But I do. I've had very anxious thoughts, I've had very dark times, and maybe many of you have too. How can we have those? Does that speak of a lack of faith? Or does that speak of just being human? Well, all these are questions, I think, that Psalm 139 throws in our face. And if we think very carefully about it, if we read it carefully, if we meditate on the words, if we think about all the verses in that psalm, then we're bound to come across some of those questions. And some of them are challenges. But also, there is great encouragement in there. And I want to reflect a little bit today on how amazing you are. If God has truly mapped out everything in history, everything in the world, even at that moment when the world was created, even at that moment, right at the beginning of our Bibles, when he rests and he sees that it is good. If you think about this, think about this moment, because God exists outside time. When God is looking at all his creation... And he sees that he is, that it is good. He can see you right now at that time and tomorrow, in fact. In the moment that God sits back and says that he sees that creation is good, he can see you within that picture. And if God created all of history and you within it, Think about this. He perfectly had the option to create it without you in it. But he decided not to. What Psalm 139 says is that you are not random. You're not here by chance. You're part of a plan. When he looked and he saw that it was good... Even then he knew you and he knew that somewhere in that long chain of DNA that we we read about there, he decided that his plan would not be as good without you in it. It would not be complete without you in it. Somehow God decided the world would be less without you. So that should be encouraging. I don't know whether it makes you feel insignificant or it makes you feel huge. Or maybe a bit of both. Maybe that depends on how you see yourself. 
Now, don't misinterpret me. I'm not suggesting that we should all be a little bit more arrogant. I'm not suggesting that at all. Because there's another little phrase in Psalm 139, which I find strangely encouraging, but strangely challenging as well. And I'm reminded of it, when I think of this phrase, I think particularly of uh, 17 years ago, I was in a tent in uh, Nepal, in the Himalayas, and do you know who Philip Yancey is? Do you know Philip Yancey? So Philip Yancey was in this tent as well. Um, and uh, he was speaking to a small group of us in this tent in Nepal. And uh, he was speaking, and he talked about a couple of passages. Um, you don't have to look them up. You don't have time to take a look up because they're quite short passages. He was speaking on Isaiah 64. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And, as often is the case, we like a, a New Testament uh, verse that links to an Old Testament verse. So in 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. So many people look at the idea of science and and particularly when it comes to things like DNA uh, as as a challenge to the word of the Bible, but so often these things are confirmed. For example, do you know that the little strand of DNA, those little strands of DNA that go to make you up, will outlive, will be in existence for longer than anything that you can see in this room? DNA lasts for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's stuff that goes to make you up. You're not going to be destroyed in the same way either physically. But I think this is saying more than that. You are amazing. You have a life everlasting. You are part of God's eternal plan for this universe. And you are made of dirt. You are made quite literally of dirt. You could think of it from the science perspective. There was a a bit of maths done to work out how much it would cost to build a human. If you take all of the chemicals that go to make up you, how much it would cost. There was a a go at it in the 1960s and it came to about $160. If you were to buy all the chemicals it goes to make you. There's been other versions. If you put all the labor in, you could go up to about £200,000, they think now. But but it is, you're made of bits and pieces, bits of stuff. But Bill Bryson, because he's a better author than me, had, a, had another way of putting this. He said, he said this in the introduction to his book. That is unquestionably the most astounding thing about us, that we are just a collection of inert components, the same stuff you would find in a pile of dirt. The only thing special about the elements that make you is that they make you. That's the miracle of life. I guess I'd rephrase it. The only thing special about the elements that go to make you is that God scooped them up and made you out of them. The only thing that's special about you is that God made you. 
Other than that, you'd just be a pile of dirt. Because that's what clay is, isn't it? Clay is just a pile of dirt. It's not particularly remarkable. You could walk outside here and go almost anywhere that you could find a bit of open ground and you could find some clay. And that's what I guess God is saying to us when he talks about us as jars of clay that hold a treasure within. When he talks about us being the work of his hands, he is the potter and we are the clay. At one level, we're all pretty unremarkable. But thanks to the intervention of God, we are amazing. We are, frankly, unfathomable and unbelievable. Have you ever felt crushed, to take the words from that that phrase? Have you ever felt crushed in your life? Have you ever felt perplexed? Have you ever felt struck down? Have you ever felt as easy to break as a jar of clay? I certainly have. I certainly felt as easy to break as that. I recognise in myself, maybe you do in yourselves too, that description of me as dirt, as nothing special, nothing valuable, nothing remarkable. Made of the stuff that we try to wash away in our washing machines. Made of the stuff that we try to eradicate when we have a shower. Made of the stuff that we try to sweep off the floor. Swept up and emptied from the Hoover bag. Sometimes I feel pretty much like that. Just so much dust. As it says in some funeral services. But I have... We have, I hope, we have this treasure within. We might be a bucket of dirt, we might be a handful of chemicals, we might be a soggy, wobbly lump. But we have meaning, we have eternal meaning. Not just meaning today. Sometimes you might think of yourself and think, what's the point today? What's the point this week? But we have meaning not just today, not just this week, we have eternal meaning. Because we are shaped by God. And he makes us, he doesn't just make us, he makes us into a vessel. And a vessel, a jar, is empty right at the middle. And then he fills us with treasure. He makes us valuable. And let's face it, a jar is only really meaningful if it has something to carry if it has the presence of the Holy Spirit if it has the presence of Jesus within us if it has the presence of God within us we become meaningful we become more than just baked dirt we become jars of treasure so I want you to feel encouraged because it doesn't matter how clever you think you are and it doesn't matter how fit you think you are and it doesn't matter how strong you think you are or creative you think you are or special you think you are you can read psalm 139 and feel intimidated by the idea that god's looking at you or you can feel 139 read so you can read 139 and feel blessed or encouraged it doesn't really matter what matters is that you are the work of god's hands 
and not accidental work. It wasn't like he made a row of jars and then had a bit left over and made you. He planned to make you. He planned for you and he planned for you to be enduring, to last forever. So if today you feel great, I hope you do. Or if you feel miserable, if you feel crushed or uplifted, if you feel special or just normal or just nothing, God turns around and says, but I made you and I have a plan for you and you are amazing. You're so amazing that my universe would not be complete without you. And I want to spend the rest of eternity with you. If you can just fill yourself with me, I will spend eternity with you. So you may think that you as an individual are insignificant. You may think you as a fellowship are just a little fellowship in just a little valley, just somewhere stuck in the top left-hand corner of just another country in the world. You are amazing. You are fearfully and wonderfully made as individuals in a fellowship together. And it is my desire, and it's absolutely God's desire, that you would feel blessed. So do be blessed today. Don't feel worthless. Feel filled with God. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where everybody is here today. Sometimes I don't even know where I am. But Lord, you do. So I pray that in whatever state each and every one of us comes to you this morning, whether we need encouragement or challenge, whether we need filling, whether we need support, whatever it is that we need, Lord, you would fill us with your presence. You would bring us that encouragement of knowing that our entire purpose, and it is a wonderful purpose, is to be filled with you. Lord, help us to receive you this morning and help us to carry you, jars of clay that we may be, help us to carry you through this week ahead together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.